This episode is brought to you by Blueberry. Blueberry is a powerful hosting service that can help your podcast become a success. You record, edit your show, log into WordPress, and start a new blog post. Presto, a pop-up loader appears. By the time your blog is finished, your podcast is loaded and ready to post. No third-party sites to log into. You never have to leave your website and you own your RSS feed. Blueberry allows you to schedule your podcast and will optimize them for both iTunes and Google Play. I use Blueberry for this podcast and I highly recommend it. It has been simple and efficient to use. I just upload my blog post and I forget about it. Blueberry handles the rest. Try Blueberry today. Visit Blueberry.com and enter the promo code The Renaissance for a free month of hosting for your own podcast. Also brought to you by The Renaissance Podcast Tour of Italy. Have you ever dreamt of traveling to Rome or Florence to see the great works of the Renaissance masters? Well, join us for a great adventure to Venice, Florence, and Rome as we explore the art and history of Renaissance Italy. We will be departing June 20th, 2017, and spend two nights in Venice, two nights in Florence, and three nights in Rome. And we'll visit many of the sites discussed in the podcast, including Florence Cathedral, St. Peter's Basilica, and the Vatican Museums, which house Michelangelo's work in the Sistine Chapel. To sign up, visit the website, therenaissancepodcast.com, and click on the tour tab for more information. The tour ID is all capital letters, DBYRD 2017. I look forward to seeing everyone next summer in Italy. Welcome to the Renaissance, episode 23, Michelangelo's Last Judgment. Welcome to the Renaissance Podcast. I'm your host, Dennis Bird. Here we are, the last episode in our series on Michelangelo and his contemporaries in Rome. Unlike Raphael, Michelangelo would live to old age and still complete works long after the death of his rivals. He would see the world change from the hopeful optimism of the early High Renaissance to the turmoil of the Reformation. In this episode, we will explore his work after the Sistine Ceiling the Medici tombs, his painting of the Last Judgment in the Sistine Chapel, completed almost 25 years after the ceiling, and the Dome of St. Peter's. St. Peter's was a project he inherited both from Bramante and Raphael when both men died before completing the Basilica. As always, I've posted images for this podcast on therenaissancepodcast.com. Just look for the episode 23 supplemental. Following this episode, I will be posting a follow-up with a reading from the Council of Trent, Session 25, concerning the use of art in the church. It will have a great impact on the censoring of Michelangelo's work and future late Renaissance artists. Before we get started with Michelangelo, we need to catch up with Giovanni de' Medici. When we last left off with Giovanni, he was fleeing Florence, just ahead of the French army, and the rising power of Savonarola. He and his brother would live in exile, and eventually... 
Giovanni would find his way into the court of Pope Julius II. When Julius attempted to take Bologna from the French in 1512, Giovanni would be by his side. The papal forces were defeated outside Bologna, and Cardinal Giovanni was captured just outside the city. He was then brought to Bologna in a scarlet robe as a hostage. Giovanni would eventually be brought to Milan, the seat of French power in Italy. The French then won a very costly victory in Ravenna. Despite winning the battle, they lost one of their most talented commanders, Gaston de Foy, who was hacked to pieces by Spanish soldiers aligned to the Pope. In the midst of this victory, the Swiss then marched south against the French possessions in Italy, and both England and Spain threatened to invade France itself. Therefore, the French were forced to withdraw from Italy piece by piece. Giovanni was taken with the French army as they retreated, but before reaching the Alps, he faked an illness. While the party was stopped, a priest who was attached to the cardinal escaped, and with the help of local farmers, hatched a plan to free Giovanni. Dressed as a soldier, Giovanni was ushered away from the camp and hid in farmhouses as he made his way south. Arriving in Mantua, he learned that the Holy League, led by Pope Julius, was already planning an invasion to overthrow the Florentine government. After the death of Savonarola, Florence was led by Piero Soderini, whom we've met many times in previous episodes. Soderini, in turn, leaned on a mitre official to help with all matter of decisions. This would be none other than Nicolai Machiavelli, the author of The Prince. Machiavelli was appointed to his post upon the execution of Savonarola and brought with him new ideas for managing the Florentine state. One of his most sweeping reforms was to end the system of defense that relied on the condottieri, the hired soldiers who often proved ineffective and unreliable. Machiavelli argued for a national militia system made up of citizen soldiers similar to that of ancient Rome. These militiamen would face down a Spanish army backed by Giovanni de' Medici. In addition to external threats, Machiavelli was also concerned with pro-Medici supporters within the city. Giovanni was in contact with the Albizzi clan, who were ardent supporters of his return to Florence. Giovanni and Spanish Giovanni and the Spanish soldiers marched into Tuscany and demanded the surrender of Florence. When a Florentine delegation presented very reasonable terms to the Spanish general, it was Giovanni de' Medici who dismissed them and demanded unconditional surrender. Soderini's response was to imprison all known Medici supporters. He gave an eloquent speech in front of the Sonoria, warning his fellow Florentines that a return to Medici rule would be a return to despotism. As Giovanni and the Spanish army approached Prato, the citizen soldiers of Florence threw down their weapons and ran. The citizens were then there to bear the full brunt of the Spanish as they raped, tortured, and butchered their way through the town. The dead were stripped and thrown into a ditch surrounding the city. Nothing could stop the savagery of the soldiers as they rampaged through Prato. In an attempt to protect some of the citizens, Giovanni offered sanctuary to the women and children at the main church and protected them with his own armed guards. Over 2,000 men of the city were killed, all of whom were surrendering or fleeing. This horrific display had its intended effect, however. A band of Medici supporters marched to the Sonoria and demanded the surrender of Soderini. He thought it wise to do so and contacted Machiavelli to arrange safe passage to Dalmatia. 
With the return of Medici rule to Florence, all of Soderini's men were purged from the government, including Machiavelli. He had hoped to work for the Medici, but given his ties to Soderini, Machiavelli was deemed too untrustworthy. He would leave Florence for his house in the countryside and begin his work on the prince. Giovanni and his brother Giuliani would enter the city on the day after Soderini's flight. Giuliani dressed simply and tried to give the impression that he wished only to be a citizen of Florence. Giovanni, however, entered as a conqueror and reclaimed the Medici palace. Florence would be under the rule of the Medici once again. Only six months after his victory, Giovanni was recalled to Rome. Julius was dead, and the cardinals would elect a new pope. Giovanni was too sick to travel, but the importance of the papal conclave meant that he would make an attempt despite his illness. He was carried in a litter all the way from Florence to Rome, arriving just after the opening ceremonies, but in time for the selection process. He would spend the first several days in his room recuperating. When he was well enough to join the other cardinals, they were divided, and nowhere deciding on the next pope. Giovanni was not even in consideration initially, but the cardinals began to see him as the perfect compromise candidate. Unlike Julius, Giovanni was affable and pleasant to be around. The young nobles wanted someone who was like them, classically educated and not another petulant farmer like Julius. Though Giovanni was only in his mid-thirties, he'd been a cardinal for 16 years, so he was also experienced. If he did turn out to be a tyrant, he was also ill, and not likely to live long. In addition to all of these attributes, he was known for his diplomatic skill, and he preferred negotiation over war. However, he also showed a willingness to use brutal force when necessary. Just look at the sacking of Prato. He seemed to fit all the qualities they were looking for in a pope, and he was someone who would provide a much more pleasant tone within the Vatican. In March 1513, Giovanni was the senior deacon of the College of Cardinals and had the honor of announcing his own name for pope, taking the name Leo X. All through the streets of Florence, the people shouted, Pale, Pale, Papa Leone. For days, the city celebrated with a raucous, carnival-like air. Bonfires were lit throughout Florence, and guards had to be placed around the city blocks to prevent revelers from stealing doors off their hinges. Pope Leo, as we'll now call Giovanni from this point forward, continued with the grand plans of his predecessor, Julius II. In fact, he would expand upon them and exhaust the wealth of the church. These excesses and a war to regain Urbino would eventually lead to calls for reform, most notably from a German priest named Martin Luther in 1517. Leo would keep Bramante on as his lead architect, but he would, however, neglect Michelangelo and refuse to give him any work inside the Eternal City. This seems not to be because of any animosity between the two. In fact, Leo speaks quite affectionately of Michelangelo. The two had grown up together and were almost like brothers within the household of Lorenzo. Rather, it seems Michelangelo's temperament and abrasive personality were difficult for Leo to tolerate for long periods. He preferred instead the company of young Raphael, who was both well-mannered and pleasant. To solve this predicament with Michelangelo, he decided that the artist should return to Florence and work on the unfinished facade of the Church of San Lorenzo. It had been begun by Brunelleschi, but he was unable to complete the work before his death, so it remained a rough exterior. 
Michelangelo would also be employed on the tomb of the Medicis inside of San Lorenzo. This would provide Michelangelo with work from the Medici family, as well as remove him from Rome. San Lorenzo was first consecrated in 393 by St. Ambrose, making it one of the oldest churches in Florence. It would in time become the family church of the Medici. By the 15th century, though, the church had fallen into disrepair, and the guilds of Florence decided to enlarge and restore the church. A new plan was drawn up by Filippo Brunelleschi, and construction began in 1422, all financed by the Medici, of course. The construction of the church was completed in 1459, including the old sacristy by Brunelleschi, and several portions decorated by the sculptures of Donatello. The facade, however, was never completed, and the front exterior of the church was bare. This is partly due to the death of Brunelleschi before the completion of the project and the waxing and waning efforts of the Medici. Far more money and time was spent on the Medici chapel rather than the main body of the church. Over time, Brunelleschi's original design was altered, so the church only bears a passing resemblance to his original work. Michelangelo was tasked with completing the facade for San Lorenzo and reconciling the various elements into a cohesive design. Beginning with sketches for the design, Michelangelo would eventually carve a wooden scale model and began importing blocks of Carrera marble for the project. He would complete the interior facade of the church, but the exterior work was never begun, and it remains unfinished today. The exact reasons for this are uncertain. Michelangelo was given the project in 1518, just after the death of Leo's brother, Giuliano, and Leo placed his nephew, Lorenzo San Piero, as the leader of Florence. Lorenzo himself would die the next year of syphilis in 1519, but not before fathering a daughter, Catherine de' Medici, who would go on to become one of the most powerful queens of France in history. This flux in leadership probably did not help the situation, and the Pope was dealing with new challenges with Martin Luther. In recent years, there has been discussion of completing the facade of San Lorenzo using Michelangelo's own plans, so we may yet see Michelangelo's design for the facade of San Lorenzo. Outraged at the excesses and abuses of the church, just think back to Pope Alexander, Pope Julius, and now Pope Leo, a German priest posted his complaints, 95 of them in fact, on the door of Wittenberg Cathedral. It's unlikely that he, nor anyone else, expected this to kick off a break with the church. Posting topics on church doors was a common way to begin a public discussion. However, the church did not intend to allow a discussion on these matters, and immediately cracked down on Luther. His movement would grow until he was finally excommunicated from the church. But unlike earlier reformers, like Savonarola, he had powerful allies in the princes of Germany, who tired of oppressive church leaders dictating to them from Italy. Luther and the Protestant Reformation will get more attention and their own episode once we get to the Northern Renaissance. For the Pope and the Italian nobles, this diverted attention away from the building projects and toward combating what they viewed as heresy. This may be one reason why the money dried up for completing the facade. It's possible that with the death of two more of the Medici family, greater attention was placed once again on the Medici chapel and their tombs. Michelangelo would cease working on the facade and shift his efforts to the Medici chapel and create a fitting resting place for both Giuliano and Lorenzo. The tomb commissioned by Pope Leo was to contain both Lorenzo and Giuliano, 
as well as Lorenzo the Magnificent, who was buried elsewhere in San Lorenzo. After barely beginning work on the chapel in 1521, Michelangelo would receive news of another unexpected death, that of Pope Leo himself. This would put the entire project in jeopardy. Cardinal Giulio de' Medici, Giuliano's son, had taken over rule of Florence upon the death of his father, but he would hurry back to Rome for the papal conclave to elect a new pope. This particular conclave had several interesting figures vying for the throne of St. Peter, Cardinal Giulio, of course, but also Thomas Wolseley, who would play such an important role in the court of Henry VIII and eventually become High Chancellor. In order to thwart the ambitions of these two men, a conspiracy was hatched among the cardinals to have Adrian Diedel, the tutor of Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor, elected as Pope. He was a mild-mannered scholar from Flanders and was the first non-Italian elected to the office. Pope Adrian, however, would not last long in office, and he would die only a year and eight months after being elected. The College of Cardinals would once again convene in Rome to select a new pope. As before, the same names were in play. Giulio de' Medici was the favorite, but the cardinals were deadlocked, many fearing another Medici pope. Word soon reached the cardinals, even though they were supposed to be cut off from the outside world during the conclave, that both the Holy Roman Emperor and the King of France both supported Giulio as the next pope. This cleared the way for another Medici pontiff. Giulio would take the name of Pope Clement VII, and Clement would continue his patronage of Raphael and Michelangelo, as well as the astronomer Copernicus. One of the first letters received by Michelangelo by Pope Clement was to reassure him of his commission for the Medici tomb and he would begin work once again, as well as continue with plans for the Medici Library, also attached to San Lorenzo, known as the Laurentian Library. Michelangelo would design the new sacristy for the Medici Chapel, based on the Pantheon in Rome. In fact, the dome is a smaller-scale twin of the Dome of the Pantheon, with a central oculus and coffers that lighten the weight of the dome. Rather than the oculus opening to the sky, however, it's capped with a lantern, not unlike Florence Cathedral. He placed several windows very high along the walls to allow light into the sacristy. The room itself is actually rather small, but by placing the windows higher than they would normally be in proportion to the rest of the building, it created the illusion that the dome and the room were much larger than they really were. Under the dome, Michelangelo would place the tombs of Lorenzo and Giuliano, the two short-lived rulers of Florence after the restoration of the Medici. These are often confused with Lorenzo the Magnificent and his brother Giuliano because of the grandiose tomb compared to that of Lorenzo the Magnificent across the chapel. Both the tombs of Giuliano and Lorenzo are mirror images of each other, with the personification of dusk and dawn over the tomb of Lorenzo and the personification of night and day over Giuliano. These figures are thought to represent the stages of a man's life on earth from youth to old age. This sculpture group contains the only known female nudes that Michelangelo ever completed. Both dawn and night are portrayed as female. There's been much speculation about this, but it seems to be just an accident of grammar. In Italian, dawn is alba and feminine. Dusk is masculine. The same is true for the figures of night and day. There's been some speculation that even though they are female figures, Michelangelo worked for male models, as he did with the Sistine ceiling. 
Art historians point to the masculine musculature that seemed to have the breast unnaturally placed on the chest. Moving to the male figures, we see the muscular nudes Michelangelo is so known for. These figures recline over the tomb opposite their female counterparts. The figure of Day has an unfinished look, giving him the appearance of emerging from shadows. We would see this again and again in Michelangelo's later work as he left parts of sculptures roughly carved and almost impressionistic. This is a stark contrast to the highly refined work of the Pietà in Rome. Above the reclining figures of dusk and dawn and night and day, Michelangelo included allegorical figures of both Lorenzo and Giuliano. Michelangelo felt that in a century, no one would care what these men actually looked like, and so he chose to create sculptures that represented the two sides of a man's personality. Both Lorenzo and Giuliano are represented as Roman soldiers. Lorenzo is portrayed as pensive, with his face shielded by his helmet. He is deep in thought and somewhat in shadow. Giuliano, however, is in the light, ready for action. His figure twists as though he is about to rise. In his hand, he holds a vitus, a stick that represents the centurion's authority over his men. Across the chapel, we see the relatively simple and bare wall containing the tomb of Lorenzo the Magnificent and his brother Giuliano, who was murdered during the Pazzi Rebellion. The simple tomb contains three sculptures. The centerpiece is a Madonna and child carved by Michelangelo, while the two flanking statues are seated male figures, that of St. Cosmas and Damien, the patron saints of the Medici family. These two were not carved by Michelangelo, but rather were completed by his students based on his models after he was recalled to Rome in 1533. In 1976, restoration work began in the Medici Chapel and revealed a hidden passageway built and used by Michelangelo. In 1529, Michelangelo had sided with the rebellion in Florence against the Medici, and he used this secret passage under the chapel as a hiding place from the Medici rulers in Florence. There's some irony that he hid from the Medici within their own family tomb. All along the walls, Michelangelo left drawings and notes. Unfortunately, this corridor is rarely open to the public in order to preserve the drawings, but they do give us a glimpse into this chapter of the artist's life. The fact that Michelangelo sided with the rebels against the Medici and the Pope is unusual given their support of his art. Yet, this is in keeping with his philosophical view. He despised tyrants, as we saw with both Julius and Leo. And he often spoke out against autocratic rulers, even his own patrons. He was a lifelong admirer of Savonarola and Erasmus, who was another church reformer and critic of the Pope. He even showed some support of Martin Luther, though he remained a faithful follower of the Catholic Church throughout his life. His distrust of authority, both civil and ecclesiastical, often put him at odds with his own patrons. When you combine this with his temper and sullen personality, it's amazing he survived the constant regime change and political turmoil of Renaissance Italy. His tremendous talent seems to be the only thing that saved him at times. Under Pope Clement, Rome has been sacked in 1527 by the Holy Roman Emperor and his German troops, many of them Protestants. The Protestant Reformation continued to cause turmoil for the Church, along with shifting alliances between France and the Holy Roman Empire. This army of Charles V would also sack Florence. Michelangelo is said to have hid in a barn just outside the city during the attack. 
The chaos of the 1520s led to an opening for the people of Florence. In 1529, they rebelled with the hopes of restoring a republic and ousting the Medici for good. The Florentines had come to resent the lavish lifestyle of the Medici and their representatives in Florence. When the news of the sack of Rome and the flight of Clement reached Florence, they were celebration in the city. The people demanded elections, and a grand council would be elected with a new gonfaloniere, Niccolo Caponi. Caponi was to hold office for just one year. There was little that the Medici could do, given their sudden loss of power in Rome and the war with the Holy Roman Emperor. Clement made his way to the French, who invaded Italy and had made it as far as Naples. In 1529, the Pope and his French allies came to terms with Charles V and struck a new treaty. This treaty stated that not only would hostilities cease, but they would align together to retake Florence and reestablish Medici rule over the city. Neither side wanted any upstart republics who might spread dissension among their own people. With this new force against them, Florence was essentially fighting all of Europe, with the French, Papal States, and Holy Roman Empire, which consisted of Spain, Austria, and Flanders, all allied against them. Many of the more cautious citizens urged for reconciliation with the Pope in the hopes of, pre in the hopes of preserving Florence. The younger and more staunchly Republican citizens voted this down and voted to begin building an army. They raised money for mercenaries and raised the civilian militias for the defense of Florence. Michelangelo was appointed to supervise the defenses of the city. He extended the defenses out to the hill of San Miniato and sought to protect the bell tower from artillery with mattresses. Just as the defenses were completed, Michelangelo fled the city. He apparently lost his nerve, but would return a few days later. He would not be reinstated to his post, but he was forgiven, and his flight was excused as part of his artistic temperament. Spanish and German troops would surround the city in the fall of 1529 and starve Florence into submission. The supply routes into the city were only kept open by the heroic efforts of Francesco Ferrucci who would lead parties out to force open the roads and harass the Spanish and Germans. Ferrucci would be surrounded in the village of Javinana in August 1530 and hacked to pieces by the Spanish. With this, the dream of Florentine independence died. The leader of the mercenaries, Malatesta Baglioni, had long been in secret talks with the Pope and Charles V to hand over the city. With the death of Ferrucci, a delegation of Florentine cities then marched out to meet with representatives of the emperor and the pope. It was agreed that the pope would absolve those who rebelled in exchange for the release of all Medici supporters. No one actually expected Pope Clement to keep his promises. As soon as the Medici entered the city, reprisals would begin. Gonfalonieri Caponi would be arrested, tortured, and then executed. All other members of the leadership were banished or executed. A manhunt was then underway for Michelangelo. We now know that Michelangelo hid beneath the Medici chapel until the Pope was ready to forgive him. Florence would never again be a republic. It was now restructured as a dukedom under Alessandro de' Medici, a bastard child of Lorenzo II. His sister, Catherine de' Medici, would be married off to the son of the King of France, creating one of the greatest dynasties in European history.
Michelangelo would eventually be pardoned, again, excused as an artist, and would return to work on the Medici tomb. In 1533, Michelangelo would once again be summoned to Rome. He would never return to the city he loved. It had been 25 years since Michelangelo pulled the scaffolding down from the Sistine Chapel. Clement VII had a new assignment in the chapel, a painting of the resurrection that was to be placed behind the altar. This would replace a painting of the same subject by his former master, Ghirlandaio. Preparations would begin for Michelangelo to start the work the following year in 1534. The Marchesa di Pescara, Vittoria Colonna, was a remarkable character in Renaissance Italy. She was the daughter of the Duke of Urbino and betrothed at the age of four to Fernando Francesco de Avalos, the son of the Marquis de Pescara. She would marry him at 19, but their marriage would be short. Fernando was a brilliant military commander for the Holy Roman Emperor and would be engaged in much of the conflict we've been discussing. In Milan in 1525, he was wounded and would eventually die. Vittoria begged to be allowed to take holy orders and join a convent, but Pope Clement refused. In her widowhood, she would become one of the great poets of the High Renaissance. Upon his return to Rome, Michelangelo would strike up a friendship with Vittoria, sending passionate verses to one another. Michelangelo would write some of his most passionate sonnets to her. The two would spend long hours together discussing poetry in their private chambers. This led to rumors that the two were more than merely platonic friends. The evidence seems to suggest a strong emotional bond between the two, but one that was never consummated. Michelangelo was frequently quoted extolling the virtues of abstinence. He need only point to Raphael, which he did often, as an example of how sex could be bad for one's health. The rumors of their relationship persist to this day, despite speculation that Michelangelo also had an intimate relation with Tommaso dei Cavalieri. The two men would also exchange romantic sonnets to one another, but as with Vittoria, it seems to have never been physical. Michelangelo and Vittoria would continue to write one another until her death in 1547, at the age of 56. He would tell his biographer, Condivi, his one regret was that he did not kiss her face the way he kissed her hand. Before Michelangelo could actually begin the resurrection, Pope Clement would pass away suddenly. This would leave Michelangelo's project in doubt once again. The papal conclave would meet to elect a new pope. This time, they would select Alessandro Farnese as the new pontiff, and he would adopt the name Pope Paul III. Paul III would continue with Clement's patronage of Michelangelo, but he suggested a change in the design for the chapel. Instead of a resurrection, perhaps the last judgment would be more fitting to the times. Michelangelo agreed and immediately began working on his interpretation of the last judgment. Michelangelo would begin this work after the sack of Rome and the Protestant Reformation, which began tearing the church apart. England, considered by many to be the most Catholic country in Europe, had also broken with the church. Italy had been in almost constant warfare for 25 years, and it was obvious that both the church and society was in a time of upheaval. The Last Judgment would reflect this uncertainty and the apocalyptic worldview of the 1530s. No longer do we see the hopeful vision for mankind as we did with Michelangelo's ceiling. The Last Judgment was dark and gritty, and full of tormented souls. 
Taking nearly four years to complete, The Last Judgment contains almost 400 figures. In medieval and early Renaissance depictions of the subject, the figures were arranged and dressed according to social class. Michelangelo eliminates social class by making all of his figures nude. They swirl upward towards Christ, who separates the elect from the damned. The elect rise to Christ's right, and those condemned to hell are cast down on his left side towards the fires of hell. Charon, a figure borrowed from Greek mythology, beats the lost souls into his boat as he ferries them to the underworld. Above Christ, we see the instruments of his torture and death, the cross where he died, and the pillar where he was flogged. Among the blessed, we are able to identify various saints by their attributes. Beside Christ, we see Mary, which may also be a portrait of Vittoria Colonna. On either side of the pair are various saints and Old Testament figures. St. Peter figures prominently to Christ's left, as well as St. Paul. Below Christ is St. Lawrence, identified by the latter, as well as St. Bartholomew, who is holding the instrument of his death, as well as his own skin. Bartholomew was flayed during his execution, and thus we see the risen saint holding his skin and the knife to clearly identify him. The face of Bartholomew is based on Pietro Aretino, a poet who, upon seeing Michelangelo's unfinished work, condemned it as obscene. The skin is actually the face of Michelangelo, giving air to Michelangelo's feelings about Aretino. Below Christ and the saints, the angels blow their trumpets, announcing the end of time. The souls are rising from their graves, answering the angels' call, some still in gruesome states of decomposition, but others resuming their form, both body and soul, as they rise towards heaven. Here, too, Michelangelo included his friends and those he admired. Even Savonarola shows up in the work. He is seen as the small hooded figure rising from the grave at the very bottom of the left side of the painting. On the right side of the painting, we see the damned, the tortured souls being beaten out of heaven and dragged down to hell by all manner of demons and devils. The lost souls shriek in agony as they descend. Among those in hell, he paints Pope Nicholas III who is the embodiment of corruption in Dante's Inferno. A lone figure with donkey's ears stands in hell in the lower right hand of the painting. It's meant to be King Minos, but he has the likeness of Biagio de Cesena, the Pope's master of ceremony. Cesena complained bitterly about the nudity in Michelangelo's work, saying of the Last Judgment, it was no work for a papal chapel, but rather for public baths and taverns. Michelangelo has cleverly covered Cesena's nudity with a snake coiled around his body and devouring his genitals. When Cesena complained of the depiction, Pope Paul III is said to have joked that he had no dominion over hell, so the portrait would stay. Every pope from Pope Paul III onward would stand before the painting as they gave Mass and see Christ sitting in judgment with damned cardinals and popes in the fires of hell. Michelangelo's powerful vision of the apocalypse was meant to be a reminder to future popes that they too would be judged by Christ. Twenty years after completing the Last Judgment, twenty years after Michelangelo completed the Last Judgment, the Council of Trent would be called to answer the charges of reformers like Luther. In some ways, this would be a confirmation of church doctrine, but in others, it would lead to meaningful reform within the church. That would essentially make the modern Catholic Church. 
the selling of indulgences, and the practice of simony would be ended. But the council would reaffirm the church's belief in salvation by faith and works, rather than faith alone, as espoused by Luther and other reformers. The council would have a great deal of impact on church art, and the development of what would be known as counter-reformation art. One of the decrees was to limit the use of the nude in church art, and it expressly forbade nude depictions of Mary or Jesus. I have posted a reading of this section from the Council of Trent following this episode. For Michelangelo's last judgment, this meant that it would soon be censored. Following his death in 1564, one of his students, Daniela da Volterra, would begin painting drapery and fig leaves over the genitals of the figures in Michelangelo's work. He is so well known for this, he became known as the Breaches Maker. The restoration of the Last Judgment began while the team was working on the ceiling. As with the ceiling, their cleaning revealed a more brightly colored fresco than previously thought. Though the Last Judgment has a darker tone than the ceiling, Michelangelo does include bright accents of blues and oranges and greens throughout the work. During the restoration, about half of the fig leaves and drapery were removed from the genitals of the figures, revealing that the figure of Minos, or Chesena, was in fact having his genitals bitten off by the snake. The later censorship also helped restorers determine which layers were original and which were later glazes or additions. Anything below the layer of fig leaves would be Michelangelo's original work, and anything above that layer would be a later reworking. After discussing so much of Michelangelo's work and his painting of The Last Judgment, I know it probably feels like we should be near the end. However, Michelangelo was extremely prolific, and he lived well into his 80s. He is also the most well-documented artist of the Renaissance. Both Condivi and Vasari would write extensive biographies on Michelangelo. So, we still have one more monumental work by this amazing artist. St. Peter's Basilica, specifically the Dome. Since it was begun in 1506 by Pope Julius and Bramante, the Basilica had undergone numerous changes. It was expanded under Giuliano Sangallo and Raphael. Upon the death of Antonio Sangallo, the fifth architect in charge of St. Peter's, Michelangelo would take over the project as Capo Maestro on January 1, 1547. Michelangelo was already 70 years old upon becoming the lead architect. He would reduce the size of the basilica and would return to the original Greek cross design of Bramante. This would give the basilica a more balanced feel. His main contribution would be the dome of the basilica. Michelangelo would return to Florence to study the dome of Florence Cathedral, built by Brunelleschi, in order to solve the problem of building a dome spanning such a large space. Walking the corridor to the lantern, the same corridor visitors travel today to the top, Michelangelo would observe Brunelleschi's use of iron hoops or rings around the dome hidden within the stonework. These iron rings would prevent the dome from spreading and thus collapsing inward. Michelangelo would also note Brunelleschi's use of an inner dome and an outer dome in his construction for the cathedral. Returning to Rome, he would then incorporate these innovations into St. Peter's. The dome contains a lingering Gothic feel of the early Renaissance, and yet this sets the stage for the Baroque period to follow, and the dome is seen as a precursor to Baroque architecture. The dome would not be completed in Michelangelo's lifetime, however, and it would not be finished until 1590, nearly 36 years after his death. 
The architects that followed him would, however, remain true to his original design. It's essentially the product of Michelangelo. Michelangelo would die in 1564 at the age of 88. His body would be taken to Florence, and the entire city would come to pay their respects. The artist of the academy, which he helped to found, would put together a grand display to celebrate their master. He would have two funerals, one large state funeral paid for by the Medici family in San Lorenzo, and a second funeral for his own immediate family at Santa Croce, where he would be buried. Michelangelo is easily one of the most influential artists of history. This is due in no small part to his long life and the great number of works he left behind. His later works, such as The Last Judgment and The Dome of St. Peter's, would set the stage for the Mannerist and Baroque artists who would follow. His writhing figures would influence Caravaggio and Rubens, two of the greatest counter-Reformation Baroque painters. The Dome for St. Peter's would become the standard for domes in Western civilization. St. Paul's in London is based on Michelangelo's design, as is the Dome of the U.S. Capitol Building in Washington, D.C. His unfinished and roughly hewn figures, as we've seen in the figure of day, would inspire the Impressionist sculptor Rodin in the 19th century. We are still living with Michelangelo today, whether it's through art inspired by his work or the countless examples of architecture in every major city in the Western world. Michelangelo has had a huge influence on the world of art and architecture. Next time, we will explore the life and work of Andrea del Sarto, an artist whom some consider to be the first Mannerist.